0: I want to invite you to open up your Bible or turn in the one in the book rack to Judges chapter 2. I'm eventually going to get there as we kick off a brand new uh, teaching series this morning. We're we're going to have a little fun too. Uh, over the next eight weeks, we're going to be going through, there's 21 chapters and we we'll gonna be going through in eight weeks, the entire book of Judges, all the part of our year in the word. We're looking at different uh, books of the Bible or stories of biblical characters in the Bible. And so it, it's going to be a lot of fun, but you may be like, uh, Judges on the Sun are like a lot of fun. Have you ever read Judges? It's pretty much the most horrific book in the entire Bible. Like some of the most gruesome, heinous, horrible things occur where you're going, where in the world is God? I think there may be no greater book for this generation, the atrocities we see happening in our time, than the book of Judges. We're here today. It is the day of Pentecost, where people around the globe who are followers of Jesus are celebrating the day that the Holy Spirit was given to the early church, 50 days after the Passover, which is where Penta comes from. That, that we're in the lineage of thousands of years of human history of believing that no matter where we're at, if you have given your life over to Jesus, received his Holy Spirit in your life, that you're never alone, whatever it is that you're facing. Isn't that cool? You may be a single parent in the room, you're not alone. You may not be able to make ends meet, you're not alone. You may be here and you're dealing with addictive habits, you're not alone. The spirit of God is with us. In fact, if the Bible is true, the spirit of God is with us in this room right now. Didn't that freak you out a little bit? Like, I want to show you in Scripture thousands of years ago in the time of the judges how when they were in great need, the Spirit of God would show up and use a person, develop them into a spiritual leader to address the issues at hand. We're going to read about some of the most horrible things in human history. By the end of this, there's going to be a civil war that breaks out in Judges 19 to 21, there's going to be all kinds of bloodshed. There's going to be probably the most gruesome act that I am remembering, at least, in the Old New Testament, in the entire Bible, in 66 books, happening in the book of Judges. Where you go, where is God? And I believe in today's culture, we know what evil is like. Where there's wars in Europe, that there are threats could get larger, where there's children who are sold over the internet in countries around the world, where even in our own country, we have things happen like Buffalo and the intentional targeting of people of color simply for their ethnicity to be murdered. Where We have in Laguna Hills, a a pastor in a congregation targeted by an individual, and a a 70-year-old man has to overtake a younger man to protect an 85-year-old to save his life. And then recently, down in Texas, now with the little children and the horrible things that we have, and you ever just wonder, God, where are you? This teaching series is for that. And it's not just for the big macro things that I just shared. It's also for the micro things, where you've been crying out to God and you have a struggle, your addictive habit, you're struggling with lust, you're struggling in your marriage, you're struggling with your kids. You're like, God, where are you? I need you. I believe he never left you. He's right there with us. And if we're willing to be obedient in the small things in our life, he's gonna show himself, but he's not always gonna show himself in the ways that we expected. And I think by the end of this, over this next eight weeks, we're gonna fight back spiritually against what the enemy is doing for evil in our time and saying, we're not standing for it anymore. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Are you ready to study God's word together? Let me build this up. So if you're new to the Old Testament, there was a time where the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, right? And then God sends Charlton Heston and he goes in and he leads them across the Red Sea, right? The prophet Moses and he, they are freed. Hundreds of thousands of Israelites are now traveling to find their promised land after hundreds of years of slavery. They get to the promised land. The people there are real big. All but two of the 12 spies are really afraid, and because of the leadership of 10 men, they don't follow the Lord, and they spend an entire generation, 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness. Spiritual leadership matters. Amen. 10 men changed an entire generation. But finally, Joshua and Caleb, the two early scouts that actually trusted God are the only two who will get to enter into the promised land. They lived for 40 years in the desert, eating little Pop-Tarts off the ground called manna, which meant, what is it? Because they didn't even know what it was. And they survived. It says that they got to the promised land and they, for 40 years, were able to wear the same clothes and sandals and they didn't wear out because God provided for them. Finally, they trusted in the Lord. They got into the promised land. They divided up according to the 11 tribes, not 12, because the 12th tribe, the Levites, were the priestly order that did not get ownership of land, but they lived in all of the different uh, states together and were acted as priests. And then you know what happened? This generation that finally got it right, trusted the Lord, got them into the promised land, gave them victory. The next generation stopped following God and they stopped listening And problems arise. And I want to show you really the heart of the entire book of Judges you can find in Judges chapter 2. Look with me in verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him, and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. So Joshua and that generation had followed the Lord. They'd seen God part the Red Sea, give him the promised land, all these amazing feats, the walls of Jericho coming down. But then Joshua dies and they bury him, it says in verse nine. And in verse 10, it says, after that whole generation that had been gathered to their ancestors, that generation died. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel one generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done. And it leads to all the atrocities that you're going to see happens. And it's going to get worse generation after generation, but God's not going to give up on them. Pause, time out just a second. You may say, uh, why do you do all the crazy things that we do as a church? And I want to tell you, it's because we don't want one generation to grow up who knows neither the Lord nor what he has done. In fact, by the end of Judges chapter 21, we're gonna come right back to that same point. That's why we got something fun and crazy as we kick off a new teaching series this morning, something we have not done for years. In the 11 years we've existed, we've only done this twice. I always say this might be the best idea we've ever had or the worst, I don't know. But this morning, and I'm not making this up, this is for real, uh, for this summer teaching series only, we're, we're bringing back the Mercy Road collectible trading cards. <laughs> I'm not making this up. you would be like, what are you talking about? Uh, this morning, and it's a little different this morning, uh, while we still have them, they're very limited. So we, run, we ran out of some of the packs this morning. So some of you could either choose a pack if there's one left, or you could get the individual card for this morning, which is Ehud, and I'll talk about that here in a moment. <laughs> and this is real. In the coming weeks, we're going to have more of these packs, and you will get packs each week. And you open up. Now, some of them, anybody that collects cards, you know, some of them are more common. Let me show you one of the common cards. Oh, first of all, we got our code card that we have. Uh, this will give you a link to the teaching series that you can watch because every collectible card pack has to have a code card. But after the code card, uh, the, one of the more common cards here early on is Ehud. Uh, it's actually Ehud, but for our we're in Indiana, so I'm just going to say Ehud. Ehud, the left-handed dude, is who we're going to be talking about this morning, Uh now I want to, I want you to show, it doesn't look Greg look nice there, uh, he's got a powerful move at being left-handed of 80 very powerful. Uh, you could get that card this morning or one of the most sought after this morning is going to be Deborah. Deborah uh, is the card everybody's one of everybody, everyone. Pastor Solander there. Look at that prophet of the Lord 150, totally destroying Greg in a battle. And I want to tell you uh, you know that is a little harder to get this morning. Then we get to some of the the rarer cards. Maybe it's Gideon. I still can't believe we actually did this. That's Gideon. But notice that's only stage one. That's only stage one. The rarest card this morning, because nobody really wants it, is uh, Gideon stage two right now. Uh, the, uh, the Ehud card is worth $1.75 in the collector's uh, cost price chart. Uh, Deborah is going up to $7 if you'd like to sell it on eBay. That one is currently is going for about 11 cents. So you're going to want to collect them there's other cards that are going to be coming out. It doesn't end there. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Next week, you have the, the opportunity. We're coming out with the, t- the summer t-shirt line is going to be released next weekend. And they're the most limited card that you could possibly get over the next now seven weeks together is the Lamb of God card, which is a foil card which if you get the foil Lamb of God card, you get a free t-shirt right out there at the Connect Center. Can you give it up to our creative team for putting all this together? We're going to have some fun this summer. On each of the cards, it gives you the chapter and one of the, the main verses from that passage and a couple of their powerful moves. Actually, if you, can you show Ben again, okay, the, the Gideon stage one? Uh, he's the first one that actually has a negative move. So be sure and recognize the different things because they have to do with the story that you read in scripture. We believe that if a generation grows up who knows neither the Lord nor what he has done, it leads to the next generation the atrocities that could come. I wanna tell you that over the next eight weeks, we're gonna start fighting back spiritually for the generations coming up, for this generation. And I believe through the story of the judges, what God ends up doing, he doesn't give up on them even though they don't listen to him. He will raise up spiritual leaders from within. If you look down to verse 16, they forsake God. They worship these false gods. And you may not worship idols today, but we have things, small g gods, that we worship and prioritize in our lives over God with our time, talents, and treasures. But verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges, spiritual leaders who heard from God, who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, I believe today we need spiritual leaders to rise up these next 10 weeks or eight weeks together. And you may be here and you're like, I'm not even a Christian. My life is a mess. You know what's God? I'm surprised my hair didn't light on fire coming through the doors of a church building. We started this church for you. We said every week the church should be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints, wherever you're at spiritually. I want to tell you this morning that God wants to use you over these next eight weeks, grow your faith to help you become the person he created you to be will you pray with me? God, a pause. And, uh, you know, some of us are brand new to church. Some of us, we've been doing this for decades. But God, on the day of Pentecost, we pray for a fresh wind of your spirit, that you would move in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our state, in our country, in our world, to make us more like you desire us to be, to address the evils that we see, racism and the hurt and pain people are causing one another and the disunity and the anger and the animosity and the vitriol. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be the world changers, the peacemakers, the spiritual leaders you desire us to be. We love you and we give you this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. You know, I want to tell you, uh, one of the things, if I'm being really honest with you, uh, when I first became a Christian, I never thought I would be somebody that would be used by God. I don't know if you ever feel like that. I felt totally inadequate. Uh, I had been like throwing fraternity parties and doing all kinds of godless stuff. And I was like, I could never be one of those Christians. And then uh, some guys at the fraternity house wanted to start a Bible study. Nobody wanted to lead it. And I was like, well, I can lead the thing, but I don't know what I'm talking about. So I led a Bible study. I didn't even know how to read the Bible yet. Next thing I knew, it began to grow in my faith. And I really felt like God was calling me to, to live on mission in a way uh, that was unique. I never thought it would be in a church. And so I moved to Southern California. Many of you know this. I went to seminary out there. I grew up in a small town in Indiana. But part of the reason I went out there was I wanted to be an actor. Some of you are like, you became one because you're a pastor. (laughs) No, 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 no." don't be harsh. I, I wanted to be an actor and I wanted to be an actor because I felt like man, God, if I could just use some skills and I could build this platform and then I could use that fame for your kingdom purposes, God. And I remember this distinctly. When I got out there, I was in grad school. And uh, during that time, I did one audition. I absolutely hated the entire experience, everything about it. And I was like, I don't ever wanna do this. And then at the same time, this large church in Southern California, one of the early mega churches, offered me a job as a youth pastor, and I was like, I don't want to be a youth pastor. And, but I did it. And I began to see God using me in that way. And I remember I had gone through one audition and I was walking down down Hollywood Boulevard. It's a true story. And if you've never been there, Hollywood Boulevard is not like the most godly place in the world. And I'm walking down there and I'm on the, the walk of fame where they have the stars that represent different famous people. And I remember just praying in that place, going, God, if, if you just use my abilities to be an actor. I will give you that platform. And one day, God, if my name could be written here on a star, I will use all of that for your glory, for your kingdom. And I remember very distinctly what he said to me in that moment. I didn't hear an audible voice, but it was like, are you kidding me? I don't need your silly Hollywood platform. You think I need that? He said, I created the universe in six days. I'm not even natural. I'm supernatural. I needed you together in your mother's womb. I know every hair on your head. I know all the days that you had before you even lived them out. You think I need your silly Hollywood platform? He's like, you could start telling people about me now and you could just use my spirit, which is way more powerful than any of your dumb platform. And so I just started doing that. And that may not be your story. What I I want to share with you this morning is if you feel inadequate and you feel like you have to do something else before you could be used by God, I want to tell you with the spirit of God in your corner, you have the most powerful thing in the world that hears your cries and your longings and your hurts and your pains. You know, in my house, uh, I never have to question if something's going wrong with my kids. Any parents uh, know this? They could be clear on the other side of the house. Down, we have a basement. They could be down in the basement with the door closed. If something's going wrong, it's literally like they're standing right next to my ear, and a piercing siren is going off. Dad, help me, help me! And then parents, what do you do? You freak out because it's like this loud scream. You're just like, "What's going on? Somebody broke a femur! Quick, call the ambulance!" Go running downstairs, and then you get down there, and it's usually something like, "He took the remote from me," you know. And you're like, "Are you serious?" I just, uh, you know, it's very frustrating. But when a dad hears a cry like that, he comes running. And I want to tell you that when your heavenly father hears you actually desperately crying out to him to address the evil in your life, he comes running. And that's what the Israelites have to do in the, throughout the book of Judges. And every time they cry out, God shows up. I want to tell you now, one of the early first uh, judges that God raises up, not the first one, but one of the early ones. It's in chapter three of the book of Judges. He raises up Uh, or we're gonna call him Ehud, the left-handed dude. And Ehud is gonna show up and be used by God to actually give them freedom. Let me show you this. See, what Israel did in three simple points, and I'm gonna move quickly. What Israel did when people abandoned God, one, they cried out for help. Israel cries out to God. You see, in Judges chapter 3, and this is a time period, somewhere, it's a 200-year period, the, the, the book of Judges, or 180 years, sometime between 1400 and 1000 BC, so thousands of years ago. And what happened is, uh, other, other lands would invade them and defeat them and take over them. And this one king, Eglon, the king of Moab, is going to invade them. Verse 12, and again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel getting the Ammonites and the Malachites to join him. Eglon came and attacked Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years, 18 years, 18 years. They're gonna be ruled by this king and they're gonna be uh, not treated well during that time period. But finally, verse 15, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, And he gave them a deliverer. It wasn't until after 18 years, they're like, we've had enough. And they start crying out to the Lord for help. They get desperate enough to address the atrocities that they're experiencing. You know, let's go macro first. On the large scale, I I mentioned Buffalo and what happened in Lugin Hills and Uvalde, Texas and things happening around the globe and even the own pain and suffering in our communities here. And I hear sometimes people say, well, I don't need any more of your thoughts and prayers. And I understand the sentiment, right? We want action and I agree with action, but as a follower of Jesus, our first response is always prayer because we are crying out to God in desperation with a, he has a power and authority. He created the universe in six days. He can overcome anything in our lives. It's like having Michael Jordan on your basketball team and not passing to him. The Israelites finally said, enough is enough. We can't do this on their own. And they cry out to the Lord for help. I was thinking about this and about my own prayer life. For those who are Christians here, do you ever feel like your prayer life is kind of like this? And I go through seasons of that. And it never fails. Like sometimes when Lisa and I will be having disagreements and you know, struggles in marriage, like every married couple, I will start looking at my life and go, I haven't prayed for our marriage in forever. Inevitably, I'll start hitting my knees and saying, God, I need your help. And here's this amazing thing. Rather than uh, doing what I knew God needed to do, which was change my wife, I I began to self-reflect a little bit. And the Spirit would begin to say, hey, you know, you've got some things to work on here and begin to notice some of the positive things in our marriage and in my wife, and, and then begin to draw us back together in unity. And it's this amazing thing when you pray and you cry out to God and you get desperate enough, he actually shows up and he hears you. Some of you this morning that you've, you are trying so hard as a parent and you just feel like you're failing. Welcome to the club. One of the first things we gotta start doing is crying out in prayer for our children and our grandchildren on a daily basis. If we don't start there, we're missing the power and the authority of the Spirit of God in our lives to change things. It was only when the Israelites began to cry out. Some of us this morning, you've been struggling with an addictive habit or struggling with lust in your dating life and you keep failing and you feel like, I just gotta will it farther. And and look, sometimes your willpower matters, but the first thing you gotta do is cry out to God for help. Because it's his spirit that gives you power, love, and self-discipline, the self-control to not dive back into the addictive habits or the lusts or the sexual activities, to cry out to the Lord and have his spirit empower you. You're missing the fuel in the gas tank. The car doesn't go anywhere without it. I want to encourage you this morning to cry out. If a family member has fallen away from Jesus, don't give up hope. Cry out to the Lord in prayer. If you see that enemy that voted wrong and they got everything wrong, I want to tell you, begin to pray for them, but also pray for yourself. It's amazing what the Lord will do with time. If we do what the Israelites do in their time where everything is broken and evil is reigning, just like we see in our culture today, we have to cry out. We have to make it a discipline. Number two, if you're taking notes, then God shows up, he gives them Ehud. Ehud, the left-handed dude, which, can we just pause for a second, was not what they were hoping for. You ever find God answers your prayers, but he doesn't really meet your expectations? I like you're like, I, I, you start praying for a, a, that husband or that wife because you feel lonely and God provides you a rooted group or an outpost to bride spiritual community. And you're like, I don't think you heard that, right, God? These sorts of things happen. Um, I, I'll look what happens here with Ehud in verse 15 again. The Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man. Why does it note that he's left-handed? Isn't that like a really weird fact to note? Is he picking on him? Why are, why are they noting that? It's very significant. And I'm going to get to that in just a moment. The son of Gera the Benjamite, the Israelites sent him with a tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Now, I've never fought in a medieval battle, but... I'm told that the reason it would be the right thigh is because if you're right-handed, the sheath would be put on the left thigh so that when you draw the sword, it's like, right? So if you're left-handed, you're going to draw like this. That's going to become incredibly significant by the end of this. The scripture notes those details for a reason. Verse 17, he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very large man, after by the way, this is a genre of writing that is uh, using the, the, the way of writing was known as like trickster writing. It, Ehud is the trickster here that's gonna win the day. So there's a bit of humor intentionally in this. Verse 18, after Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent uh, on their way to those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Golgall, he himself went back to Eglon and said, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us. And they all left. So let's get this straight. You've been crying out for God. You got desperate enough after 18 years of being overlorded by this evil gluttonous man, Eglon, king of Moab, the way that God answers this this prayer to get rid of this gluttonous man and all of his armies, you gotta be thinking they're expecting like walls of Jericho moment, right? Supernatural event, walls fall down, we take over the city, or maybe at least a legion of angels come flying in and you know, destroy everything, Sodom and Gomorrah, this thing, baby. And instead, all they get is some left-handed dude who, who's just all by himself, no real army going in there. And somehow that's gonna win the day. I find that sometimes God's expectations are different than ours. If I was in the first uh, century, or I was in this time period, I would have thought this left-handed nobody is gonna pay my money to a gluttonous man. What in the world is God doing? When we try and make sense of God, a lot of times in our human nature, we can't. I, I talked to a woman this morning at the first service who she, she uh, wanted a stronger marriage. Not that it was innately bad, but just wanted a stronger marriage. She began to pray, God, draw us closer together as husband and wife. And then like the next day, the husband lost his job. And they were like, uh, I don't think you heard that right. This is going to cause us more stress. Not really sure this is helpful. And then that job that he didn't really like, he ended up finding another job that he liked better that now allows him to work remotely and he has more time with his wife, which was the very thing she was praying for. And sometimes when God answers our prayers at first, we can't see it because it's his story, not ours. We just have to be faithful and obedient even when we don't understand it. If we want to address the evil in our culture, to help our schools and our kids and our children and uh, actually see the next generation grow up to know the Lord and what he has done, it's gonna require that we are uh, looking for what the Spirit of God is doing and we're obedient to it even when we don't understand it, even when we disagree with it politically, even when we disagree with uh, the way that things are being done, we say, God, I want to serve you in any way I can. I remember the first time I got up to preach in front of thousands of people, I was 23 years old. I was not a very good preacher. And I got up there and I was so nervous. And for probably the first two or three years, I kept thinking, God, why in the world do you have me doing this? Like when I would act, they already wrote the lines for me. Now I had to figure out what I was supposed to say. And over that time, I'm at the end, Cheryl, how God grew my faith during that time because I was so afraid of what he had called me to do. God provides uh, Ehud, which by the way, there's even greater significance in him being left-handed. In ancient Near Eastern culture was often associated that you must be evil or even demonic if you were left-handed. I know that's weird. Do we have any left-handed people in the room? Yeah, okay. Nothing wrong with you guys. Uh, Jesus loves you, God loves you, but there's this like a cult like thing where they just associated there was something evil or wrong with left handed because there's not near as, near as many left handed people. In fact, if you still go to Africa today and many of the African cultures, you never shake with your left hand. It's considered rude for multiple reasons that, you know, anachronistic reason, but also because the left hand is used for unmentionable things and you don't shake people's hands with it. Needless to say, when God shows up and he supplies one guy, this little dude who's left-handed, they gotta be thinking, is that the best we got? And yet God is gonna end up using Ehud in a way he couldn't have used anyone else. It's like the story that you've ever heard. If you're crying out to God for help and he supplies you with what you need, sometimes we don't recognize it because we're not looking. You heard maybe the story of the guy that was like out on a shipwrecked island. He's alone, he's abandoned on this island. And he cries out to the Lord for help. Lord, help me, free me, get me off this island. And then this like boat comes up, says, hey, you wanna ride? He says, no, I'm waiting on God. Sends the helicopter, no, I'm waiting on God. Says the plane, tells the pilot, nope, I'm waiting on God. And then ultimately God shows up and is like, hey, I sent a boat, a plane, a helicopter, what are you doing? And sometimes we don't recognize how the Lord is working instead of just saying, oh, this must be what God is doing right now to begin to see, oh, my husband lost his job. Maybe God's doing something to bring us together and we just need to surrender to it. See, the third and final point is that God will use Ehud's unique abilities because he's left-handed. You know, when I told you I started preaching, I'd get super nervous. And this thing happened. I would get so nervous that like I couldn't get through the words, so I had to have like be like super, super, super prepared. And so I would like go over it verbally, out loud, hours on on time. I would take notes and I study uh preachers all over the country at that time online, and I would literally write word for word every word that they said down, and I'd try and figure out how they were composing this and putting this together. I don't know why, but my brain works analytically like that. I began to analyze different styles of preaching and communicating, and then I discovered God's voice within me and what that looked like, and I kind of developed a way that I would communicate, and to this day, I still have detailed outlines that are color-coordinated, and everybody thinks I'm weird, but like I believe because of that time period where I was so afraid of doing what God God had called me to do, He actually grew me into a much more thorough and analytical communicator because of it. You may not see what God is doing, but the very thing He's put in front of you may be the thing that you're most afraid of. He's calling some people in the room to reach out to your neighbors, and you feel, feel like, I'm not qualified. I could never do that. He's calling some of you to go and start an outpost and live on mission and community and stop doing life alone, and you're like, I don't want to do that. I really like Netflix. And sometimes the very thing that we're afraid to do to make time for is the thing we need the most to grow us into the people he created us to be. God uses Ehud's unique abilities here. Look what happens in verse 20. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace. And he said, I have a message from God for you. You Got like a Blues Brothers thing going on here. That was old school for a few of you. No one got that. That was great. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh. Now, two things here. There's a, this is meant to be a humorous trickster story. It was a genre of writing in, in Israelite culture. And so it's going to get some really gruesome details. And that's why it's uh, told that, the story's told that way. But Ehud here, it gets into the king's chambers alone with the sword, is going to kill the king. How'd he get in there? with the sword. Nobody's getting in, the enemy's not getting into the king's chambers alone with the sword. How'd he get in there? See, scholars unanimously agree on this. What would have happened before you would ever be in the presence of the king, they would have patted you down for a weapon, but they patted down the wrong thigh. Because he was left-handed, they automatically assumed he was right-handed, so they checked the left eye; nothing there, you're good to go in. And the very thing he would have been ridiculed for in ancient Near Eastern culture is the thing that God uses to bring them freedom and a blessing. You may be here today and feel like, because I got this broken past, this sin in my life, I got this destructive habit, I will never become this difference maker, a disciple maker, I'll never be a spiritual leader by any means. And I wanna tell you, the enemy is gonna whisper that to you for the rest of your life. But over the next eight weeks, if we're actually gonna make a difference in this culture and say, we don't want racism in our city. We don't want the type of destructive habits we see in our city. We don't want the anger and animosity of Christians infighting with one another in our city. We wanna work with other believers to change this world for Christ, to reach a million disciples for Jesus by the year 2050. Everything that's out in that hallway out there over the next two months together, I'm gonna invite you to fight back spiritually. To say this generation will grow up knowing the Lord and what he has done. And we're not gonna be afraid of that or ashamed of that, but we have to realize God's gonna use unique people that we don't always understand what the Lord is doing. Because he was left-handed, he got a sword into the presence and God is gonna use his very disability to be what brings them victory and freedom. The passage goes on to describe that he he plunges in. There's this. It's meant to be humorous, but disgusting thing of uh, the sword being taken into his body, and then he's gonna sit up there for a while. And they come to check on the king, and the doors are locked, and they're like, "What's going on?" They don't even think they knew that he didn't have a weapon, right? So they just kind of left him. And it literally says in verse 24, the king must be relieving himself in his chambers, and we all know he takes a long time when he does that. And they think he's going to the restroom. When actually God is about to bring a victory, Ehud is able to sneak out, go back, blow the trumpet, and all of the the army comes charging in. They no longer have a leader and they easily take the city. We can never see what God is doing, but we can join with him when we know he's at work. Because Ehud was left-handed, they didn't check the sword. What the world thought was a curse, God made a blessing. Some of you in here, you have generational curses in your life. Your father and your mother had addictive habits, and so you developed addictive habits. Your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your great-great-great-grandparents. And this thing gets passed on that geneticists and scientists are still discovering that even some of the emotional cues we check and traumas we experience can actually change the DNA and the coding. We can pass on things to future generations. And before we know it, we do the same problematic evil habits, and the enemy is like, yes. I'm winning. And what the Lord says, because the Spirit of God is given to any believer who believes and receives in the grace and forgiveness of Jesus crucified on the cross, forgiven for all our wrongdoing, resurrected from the grave, overcoming death itself, that anybody can draw near to a perfect God. Have His Spirit if you believe and receive the Spirit of God in your life to address the the generational curses that are coming. Just because your family was broken and someone had a divorce doesn't mean God is not, is done with you, and you will always be this broken, cursed person. Just because you've had this addictive habit or you've made a mistake in your life or you hurt somebody or 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 you thought something, or you did something wrong. God has not done with you He can use the very people we think are unusable to change the course of human history. The question is, are you gonna allow him to use your life to be a blessing or are you gonna sit in that curse forever? I'll end with this. Uh, You know, one of the hardest things I've ever gone through and maybe some of you are like, well, that's great to say, but I'm going through like the worst season of my life. We have people in our church that are dealing with cancer I talked to a friend the other day that had discovered just recently he had cancer and praying through that. Some of you have lost family members in the last couple of years. Some of you have had friends or loved ones who have walked away from Jesus angry at the local church. And if we don't believe that God can change things, what are we doing? And I believe if we cry out, God is gonna supply us with what we need, but we have to be ready for the blessing on the back end of how he could actually use us to change it. When uh, we first moved here to plant the church, we were all in, knew God had called us, sacrificed everything. And I mean everything. My wife grew up in Southern California. She moved to Indiana, you know what that's like? And we get here and within a month of getting here, we found out our unborn son had a genetic disorder. Most of you know the story, he makes a full term. We think we're gonna take him home and he dies at two weeks old in the hospital. Lowest time of my entire life. Wish nothing more to have my son back. But I don't think he wants to be with us because he's in the presence of God. He, his story got told and we saw all kinds of people around the country be reached for Christ because of it. And you know what happened on the back end? Not only did this church get started out of that pain and suffering and trauma, and we reached a lot of broken people because we were in such a broken place. But on the back side of that, you know, uh, after we lost our son, we were so desperate for a kid. We, we had a child faster than we had planned to intentionally because we, we just wanted a child so bad. And we had my daughter and she's the greatest angel, the sweetest gift my God uh, has ever given me.